Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. That was the longest one, and uh, how encouraging that you got through that so flawlessly. Thank you. If you're just joining us at our church for the first time, we're working through a series on seven letters which Jesus wrote to seven prominent churches in the region of Asia Minor, which today is called Turkey. And the one we're, we're on today, um, Mark, would you get me the, uh, the little clicker that's on my bag there? Thanks. The one we're on today is the Church of Thyatira. And it's a wonder that this church received a letter at all. Because it, it, if, to give you a little background on the city of Thyatira, it was the least significant, least important, smallest of the seven cities that received a letter from Jesus. In fact, it was so insignificant that when it was ruined and conquered and defeated and smashed, no one thought to give it any honor to rebuild it. In fact, they just built a new city on top of the ruins and gave no thought to what they were covering up. If you look today, all that's left of the archaeological dig, the ruins of the original ancient city, is that one little city block. And there's a new town in Turkey called Akasar, which literally translated in Turkish means white castle. So you talk about no respect. They built a white castle on top of the ruins of this old city. This was a city that was insignificant, and yet Jesus sees the church there and writes the longest of all the seven letters to this small church in this small city that had no obvious importance. The history of the city was that it was built by Seleucus, who was one of the chief officers serving under Alexander the Great. Now, Seleucus was given a large area of land after Alexander had conquered everything, and so he built this city at the very gateway of his realm, and it was meant to just be a speed bump for any would-be invaders. It was built on a wide-open, flat plain, I mean, this is, a, this is all that's left of the ruins. This is a rendering of what it looked like. There were mountains off in the distance, but pretty much the city was situated in a very flat area, undefendable. So anybody trying to take over would have to fight the garrison there. And the soldiers stationed there knew that their job was just to slow down the enemy as they died and give everyone else a chance to run away or defend themselves. Well, that's the story of the city. Was it, was, it was defeated and then rebuilt, defeated and rebuilt until the Romans took it over in 190 BC. And after that, whatever the Romans went, they initiated with war. They crushed everybody with an iron fist. But then they settled the place and brought stability. And we call that stability the Roman peace, or in Latin, the Pax Romana. And that peace throughout this large realm allowed there to be commerce, that was uninterrupted. It, it allowed crime to go down. It allowed people on trade routes to bring their caravans without a lot of fear that raiders would come and, and get their stuff. And so under the, the Roman peace, the city of Thyatira flourished. It became a commercial center. Whereas once it sat on a major route that was going to get defeated militarily, it became a place perfectly situated on the trade routes to make a lot of money. In fact, it was a working person city. Of all the churches that Jesus wrote letters to, um, I think this city most reminds me of Chicago. It, we're like the second city. We're not the most politically important city. We're not the most culturally important city. But we're the city that works, right? Isn't that the nickname? The city of broad shoulders, the city that works. We are no-nonsense, Midwestern, hardworking people. 
And that's what the city was like. It was a working class, industrious city. It wasn't exactly the center of emperor worship. There weren't a lot of Jews there who would make trouble for the Christians. So the majority of the pressure for the people there, the Christians, came from these trade guilds that were like unions today that existed throughout the city. And I'll say a little bit more about that. But that's the setting for the letter that that Jesus writes to this church in a small city called Thyatira, a commercial working class manufacturing center. So there are three things that Jesus has to say to this church. And the first is... Keep pursuing spiritual growth. Keep pursuing spiritual growth. This church gets the most glowing endorsement out of any of the seven churches. Even though it's the least significant, it receives the highest praise from Jesus. He says, I know your deeds. And look at what he lists. He sees their love. He sees their faith or faithfulness. He sees their service in ministry. And he sees their perseverance in the face of hardship. And he says, in all of these things, you're doing great. I don't know what more you could ask of a church than to excel in these four things. And on all these four pillars of a healthy church, they are knocking it out of the park. But he's not done. He goes on to highlight, but here's the the greatest part of it. You're not just doing good, you're growing. What you're doing now is more than what you were doing at first. That's not a small compliment. Because if you really think about it, that's actually a very rare occurrence in spiritual life. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, think this way. Think back to the earliest days of your Christian experience when you realized Jesus was your Lord and Savior. Can you think back to that moment? Some of us grew up in Christian homes. We sort of slid into it. We're not sure when it all started. But do you remember a stage of your life where Jesus became real to you and you were coming alive? You're excited. You were reading everything you could get your hands on. You would go to five or six worship services every week, every missions trip, every conference, every retreat. Do you remember those days where the zeal, the sense of wonder, the joy, the world seemed full of possibility and hope? Do you remember those days? You guys dead? Are you... Do you, I, maybe you don't feel it now, but do you remember when you felt that way? I remember it. Christian music stunk back then, but that's all we listened to. The same tape over and over. Randy Stonehill, Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith. We ate it up. And it was such bad music, but it was such great music. Because it spoke about Jesus, who we were falling in love with. I remember those early days and exactly how it felt. It's like falling in love. It's like each time you hold hands, it tingles. Do you remember that? Now, think back to that and compare it to how you feel now about Jesus. You probably grew a lot in your knowledge, in your experience, perhaps even in your wisdom. But think about how you feel in your heart about the person of Jesus Christ today. Now, I'm not going to presume. I think for a lot of us here, that's actually a growth. For us, we feel better about him than we used to. But let me ask you, for how many of you, if you're really honest about it, you compare the early days to the way you feel today, and that graph is on a downward slope. It's a pretty common thing when I talk to people. Tell me about your early, early faith, and tell me how you feel about Jesus. It's rare for me to meet an adult Christian who goes, oh yeah, I am on fire. Stuff I did before, child's play. I am like in the stratosphere right now. The love I have for Jesus, I'm running laps around the love I used to have for Jesus. I almost never hear that from adult Christians anymore. What I hear is, 
yeah, tired. I feel a lot of numbness, a lot of doubt, a lot of pessimism, a lot of regret, a lot of lethargy or laziness. It's just hard to even get up in the morning and spend some time praying or looking at the Bible. And I think, isn't that unfortunate that spiritual growth and fervor in the Lord is such a rarity among the people of God? It makes me sad. It makes me feel like something is not right in the way we've approached life when for so many Christians, we can't speak of growing more in love with Jesus the longer we walk with him. You know, some time ago, Calvin and Grace Chang gave our staff a wonderful gift. They donated a ping pong table to the ministry center. And the pastoral team of ICC and HCC have used the living daylights out of that table. Every day around two during food coma time, we play a few or a few dozen games. We, we, we put that table through its paces. And what I've noticed is our skills are really improving. I've had an opportunity to travel to speak at a few places. And at these retreats, they'll have ping pong tables. And I'll line up all the best players in whatever church I'm speaking at. be like, bring it on. And I'm crushing these fools. Just cry. I mean, it's not. It's almost like, like children. I'm playing children. Was I always this good at ping pong? And what I realized is this. When you love something, no one has to tell you to pursue it. You do it a lot. In fact, we probably do it too much. Once we shake off the food coma, now we're just playing because we like it. What you love, you pursue without anybody prodding you to do it. And what you pursue often, you grow in. Now, that may not have anything to do with Jesus in your life, but it has to do with something in your life. Because unless you're dead, you're growing in something. You're passionate about something. There has been something in your life which, because of internal motivation, you're chasing without anyone telling you to chase it. I don't know what that is, but there's something like that that's familiar to you. You chase it because you want it so badly, and you are internally motivated. And when you keep chasing it, what happens? What happens? Invariably, inevitably, you will grow in the thing you do over and over and over because that's how the universe was designed to work. Unless you are astronomically inept, anything you do again and again, you're going to at least get a little growth, aren't you? A little bit better. That should be the way it is with our relationship with God. It should be the, the thing that marks our walk with Christ is that we pursue him because we love him. And as we pursue him, we grow in that relationship. That's the case with anything. The writer of Hebrews, you could just feel how palpable his frustration is. He's in the middle of this incredible doctrinal argument. And then he kind of pauses and he goes, man, I'm so frustrated. And listen to what he says. There's much more that we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you, you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For somehow, someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Now, 
don't receive that rebuke unless it's relevant to you. But I think for a lot of Christians, we need to hear that because the writer of Hebrews is so frustrated. He wants to take this teaching to the next level. He's already given some gems up to this point. And he's like, oh man, there's more. I really want to get un- unpack this stuff. But I don't know how to say it to you in a way that's intelligible because you stopped checking in a long time ago. You still watch Spongebob and I'm trying to talk to you about Shakespeare and I don't know how to communicate that. And that's his frustration is at this point, all of you have been in the church so long. You should be teaching other people, but I'm still back at ABC with you. Now, I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying that's the writer of Hebrews expressing this frustration. And it buried in that frustration is this understanding. It's normal and imperative that people should grow in the thing. That just sitting there being the same is not normal or desirable in any endeavor. If you're the same where you were 10 years ago in your faith, your faith is, it's dead, it's flatlined. Because living things have to grow. We've created a kind of Christianity in the United States that makes us quite comfortable and content with a dead faith. See, I've pretty much been there, seen that, done that. Now I'm going to just rest for a while. God knows where I stand. Does he? Would that work with your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, boyfriend? Would that work with your children? I never hug them, play with them, but they know where I stand. Come on, I'm their daddy. I don't have to actually play with them or hug them or kiss them. They know. No, they don't. They're spending all their days wondering about you, and you've made these great assumptions about everybody knows where I stand. How do you even know where you stand? How do you really know? Because anything we're alive in, we're growing in. I guarantee if you're not growing in Christ, you're growing in something. Look at that to learn this basic principle. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians writes this. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, what does he say? I put away childish things. What he's suggesting is there are stages to spiritual growth. When we're new in the faith, there are childish activities, not childish as in beneath us, but the basic opening things we do that help us understand and give shape and meaning to the world around us. And he says, those things you did when you were new in the faith, but as you grow, those things can no longer keep the growth going, and so you have to graduate from milk to solid food. I'm looking forward to when when Bob and Renee's daughter, Kieran, moves on to solid food because on milk, she spits up on me every time I hold her. It's this idea that there are stages, and if you want to keep growing, you can't be in a... It's not like I'm at lunch having like a six-liter milk bottle going, oh, I've grown. I'm still drinking milk, just more of it. It's a qualitative progression when we grow in anything. So he's presuming that's the normal thing, and everybody who's human understands the basic principle. You grow so that there are stages. And when you move from one stage to the other, you put aside the things that used to nourish you because there are new things that are greater yet to nourish you for the new stage of the journey ahead. Here's a problem I see. That for many American Christians, we move on and we put away childish things, but we don't take up anything to replace them. We get bored of the stuff that shouldn't be nourishing a mature person anymore, but we don't take up new things. Instead, we go, well, like, let me give you an example. When I was a new Christian, I was taught by my Christian leaders to have the slavish dedication to something called QT, quiet time. Do you remember quiet times? 
Do you remember like 15 years ago when you used to have them? Like quiet time. Every day you take out your journal, your little book, and your Bible, and you have QT. It's QT time. And I was raised in Christianity to believe that that was the foundation, the pillar of my relationship with God. And I was very zealous. I, I want to do it every day. If I missed one day, I would do two QTs in a row just to make sure my accounts were, were flush, you know. Um, <clears throat> that's just the way it was. And then you grow older and you go, ah, but the slavish addiction to QTs, it's so child, it's almost legalistic. God knows where I stand. I love him. I love his word. And I, I've read all these things so many times. Maybe I should just do something else. And so we put aside the habits that raised us in the faith, but there's nothing to take its place. That's the problem. It's not that we don't do the childish things, but we don't do any grown-up things either. So if you get rid of this legalistic devotion to the daily QT, the question I would ask you, I think the question Jesus is asking is, what has replaced it that represents an evolution, a maturing of the eating of the Word of God, of devoting your heart to Him? What is the new form that is better than what you put away? Because you can't just put it away and take nothing up and still want to be on the growth track. It will never work that way in anything. I think what we learn from this opening endorsement of the church in Thyatira is that Jesus is greatly pleased when he sees growth in us. And he's teaching us by that praise, that compliment, that he wants us to grow. That it's right for us to have a steady progression or evolution in anything we do, but especially in our walk with him. Amen? We need to be growing as a sign of life and passion about this most important relationship in our life. But then he says the second thing to them. He says, but listen, you're doing great, you're growing spiritually, but avoid moral compromise because not all is well in the church of Thyatira. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman. I always want to say Monica Lewinsky after that. I don't know why. (laughs) You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. See, Pergamum had false teachers. False teachers, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, trying to sneak into the church. They had them. They couldn't get rid of them. They're like termites. But Thyatira didn't just have false teachers. These were wolves in wolves' clothing. Just right out in the open going, I'm a wolf. I'm going I'm to lead people straight. And they were just leaving her alone. She went unchallenged as she's doing all this spiritual damage. Nobody would confront her. And so this was the complaint of Jesus. It's not that everybody had gone astray. But man, there's this woman doing this. It offends me so deeply. And none of you have done a thing about her. In fact, the word tolerate is a very strong word, which can even connote they've accepted her, made her feel that she has a home amongst them. Hey, we're, gonna, we're not going to get in your face about this. This is a community. You have a place here too. This is your home as well as anybody's. That's a generally good attitude to have until someone begins to punch God in the face. And suddenly, they should not be made to feel so welcome in God's house, pooping all over the photo of God's face. How is it possible that a church that is so praised for spiritual growth can be so lax and tolerant of somebody who's causing so much spiritual damage. I puzzled over that for a week. Just like, I don't understand how the church that received this compliment could receive this rebuke. 
But I think that the, the more you read the text, the clues are buried in there. If you look at verse 19, there's the word love. He, he praises them for growing in agape love. That word agape love, um, a very powerful word, only appears twice in the, lev- in the seven letters Jesus writes. Once to the letter of the church in Ephesus and once to the letter to the church in Thyatira. When he wrote to Ephesus, here's what he said. You guys have guarded your beliefs and doctrines well, but you've lost your first love. But to this church, he says, you have guarded your love very well, but you have lost your doctrine and your moral compass. It's the opposite problem that the Ephesian Christians had. Here's what he's saying. I think it's a... Let me build the case a little more slowly. The church in Ephesus guarded its beliefs and faded in love. The church in Thyatira guarded its love but faded in its beliefs, its moral rigor. Let me take a quick poll, okay? Everybody participate. You know the, the general tension that exists in the world between head over heart and heart over head. You guys familiar with that? Now, head over heart doesn't mean you're a heartless, cold jerk and you kick puppies on the way to work. It just means you put a greater weight on the nobility of thought and reason versus feelings. And when you're hard overhead, that doesn't mean you are a bleeding heart lunatic or idiot who only feels and has no logic, but that you have, you have a greater value of feelings and compassion over cold logic. So, I want to take a quick poll. How many of you identify yourselves more as head over heart? Okay, and just to see who else is there, how many of you are more heart overhead? Okay, I'm raising my hand. I'm, I'm definitely discovering myself to be more hard overhead. The problem, the inherent danger for people like me, people like us, all you who raise your hand in the second group, heart overhead people, head over, head over heart people have a serious problem too. They have an inherent built-in weakness. You can become real jerks. Okay? Total jerks. But hard overhead people, here's our danger. We can operate under such a distorted picture of love and grace that we start to accept things that are unacceptable. Because hard overhead people don't want to get in anyone's face and make people feel uncomfortable or upset. And, you know, after all, who's perfect? And come on, let's just try to... And so there are times when even when decisive action is needed, when we need to fight, defend, stand up, we squeak. Oh, dear, we should should just... It's weakness when strength is required. And sometimes that is the domain, the inherent weakness of hard overhead people like me. The church in Thyatira, I think, was so distorted in its picture of what grace looked like that even with a woman who receives the nickname Jezebel, they just left her alone. They're like, what are you going to do? She's got a lot of people who respect her. Some people are following her. She says some stuff that sounds kind of true. Just let, let's, let's live and let live. She's not going to do that much damage. You keep an eye on her. Don't worry. Elders have it under control. And so as a result, they just left her be. And the damage kept growing. And what is more, the offense in the heart of God was growing. Now let me me give you the the setting in the city. I said it was a manufacturing city that was built around these things called trade guilds, which are very much like the unions of today. And the city was divided into sections that were dominated and run by each of these guilds. And they had a guild hall. And it was a really interesting way to structure life. Social life, business, and even religion in the city revolved around these trade guilds. 
Now, membership in the guilds was not mandatory, but it was strongly encouraged, meaning it was nearly impossible to flourish and advance in business if you were outside of the guilds. It's sort of like if you're a teacher in Illinois, you don't have to join the union, but go ahead and try to build a career without joining the union. And they make it so difficult and tedious not to be in the union, and you really are better off just joining up. Isn't that, well, I, I, that's a pretty political statement, I don't know. But you get this idea, it's like this, you don't have to be in the guilds, but go ahead and try to make a living without it. That was basically the attitude, and probably even that kind of accent, you know, just this real blue collar, go ahead, try to make a life without joining us. And so this is a great pressure, because you couldn't get a license to open a business, you couldn't get permission to do this. People needed to be in your good graces, you need to be in theirs, in order for you to make things work. Now, here's the problem. Each of these guilds had a patron, god, or goddess. And when the guilds had their weekly or monthly gatherings, they were more like religious feasts. They would honor their patron god and say, you're the one who has caused us to have this boom in the polished bronze market or in the dyed wool market. This god or goddess has given us prosperity. And so they would have a religious festival where they would celebrate and give thanks and offering to their god or goddess so that they would have greater prosperity later. Now, with these festivals, these pagan feasts, after people ate and drank enough, they would almost always degenerate into sexually debauched, drunken orgies as well. That's well recorded for us, that these parties often degenerate into, let's just everybody have sex now too. Why not celebrate life? You can see then that this would pose a bit of a problem for the Christian businessman. I remember years ago when we were just starting the church, there was a a man at our church who just confided to me, he's having a really hard time because he's in corporate sales, but in the industry he's in, you know, there's like the dinner that you expense on the books and you're supposed to try to make the deals. But he goes, you know, Pastor Dave, the truth is the real deals happen after the business meeting is over. All the guys who are in town from out of town, they want to go to a strip club. That's where the real deals happen. You got to lubricate them with strip clubs. And my bosses are saying, yeah, you know, you can't expense it right on. The, but there's a way, and you've got to do this. This is a necessary evil to sign the deal. And I remember this brother saying to me, I'm having a really hard time with this. And I can appreciate that. I would have a hard time too. He says, what do I do about this? The pressure is so intense that if I don't play ball, I don't get to keep playing the game. So what do I do? That's a pretty difficult situation to be in, but some of us understand this too. We are tempted, we are compelled to make moral shortcuts. Maybe not cheating, but maybe throwing your family away. Maybe throwing your health away. Maybe getting rid of every other competing priority so that you can get ahead in whatever it is you're trying to get ahead in. Maybe you have to make ethical shortcuts. But you know the rules. If you want to move forward, you got to play the game the way they say. What do you do as a Christian? Well, in Thyatira, enter Jezebel. This woman, enticed and misled through her teaching, the many Christians of this town, to engage in that very food uh, served to idols and sexual immorality. In other words, that's code for saying she encouraged them to participate in the guild life with impunity. She encouraged them to say, hey, just go ahead. It's not a big deal. I know you have a little tension, but don't worry about it. God is totally okay with all this. Jezebel is probably not a real name. 
It's a code name, a symbolic name, referencing what everybody knew was the most wicked woman in Israel's history. It's funny how one person could ruin a name forever. I, just on a whim, I, I search whitepages.com, and there are nine Adolf Hitlers residing in the United States. H- how dumb are you? <laughs> if your last name happens to be Hitler, how about not name yourself Adolf? But, you know, it's like there are certain people who are so notorious, they have ruined that name forever. No one could ever be named Jezebel and be like, yeah, I'm great, aren't I? Jezebel became a bad word. You called someone a Jezebel, and that had meaning. I have to never call anyone a Dave and like, oh, snap, he just called you a Dave. You know, that would be awful. But that's, that's the name Jezebel. I had this meaning, you are one wicked woman. And why was she so wicked? Because she married Ahab, and by the way, the Bible says marrying Ahab was a thing that made God the angriest. It's the most evil thing Ahab ever did was marrying Jezebel. And then she enticed him and all of Israel to mix all the religions together so that Baal worship and the worship of God became all confused and mixed together, and they lost their faith. An entire nation was losing its faith because of this woman's influence. And it said because of that, God was angry with Ahab more than he was angry with all the kings who had come before him. And let me tell you, it was a rogues gallery of pretty bad kings who had come before him. He said, just Ahab made him madder than ever because he hates to watch somebody lead others away from their faith. How did Jezebel in Thyatira convince these people that it was cool to go to these feasts and to have the orgies and God was totally okay with it? How does she bamboozle them? It's an older, you don't hear that word very often, but how does she bamboozle into believing this was okay? Well, she probably latched on to an emerging, an old philosophy in Greek thinking that was now getting new resurgence at the time, dualism, which is being reborn into something called Gnosticism. This idea that um, the Greeks believed there was this very hard boundary between the physical or the body and the spirit or the mind. The spirit or the abstract was by nature clean and holy, whereas the body was by nature dirty and corruptible. And the Greeks would draw a hard line and say, well, what happens on this side is separate from what happens on this side. And I think Jezebel picked up on that. That's my best guess based on the context and history. She said, look, our God is spirit, correct? Yes, our God is spirit. And our God saves souls, not just bodies, correct? Yes, our God saves souls, not just bodies. Our God cares about what's in your heart, does he not? Yes. Well, if God cares about the heart, then what you do in the body, he doesn't really, he's, it's beneath him. Do you really think God's up there just worrying about what you do in your flesh when really what's going on in your heart is the most important thing? And so she taught them, probably, that what was going on in the guilds was a necessary evil. It was just their civic duty. I mean, after all, what does God want? For you to starve to death and watch your kids starve? You got to make money and there's only one way to do it in this town. And so God will forgive a little indiscretion because, after all, some of that money goes to the church and tithes and offerings, and some of it goes to the, whatever, some charity, and you feed your kids. It's good stuff. God understands that what happens in the body is less important than what happens in the heart. Now, that's not such an ancient thought, is it? Because that attitude is very prevalent today. I hear it all the time. All the time. People espouse that idea of Christianity, that all God cares about is the heart. Heart. Body, whatever. You can do whatever you want in the flesh. That's all nonsense. It's child's play. The heart is what really matters. So I I see people trashing the name of God in their physical life, but they'll say to you very defiantly, yeah, but you know, God knows where my heart is. 
And really, after all, that's all that matters. I don't know where they read that. I don't know what Bible they're getting that from. But they say it so dogmatically. I start believing. I'm like, dang, you're really convinced that God doesn't care about the body. He only cares about the heart. I listen to a lot of stand-up comedy. And from time to time, comics stop telling jokes and they get a little preachy. And sometimes when they get preachy, they perfectly give voice to this attitude. They say things like, you really think with all the crap going on in the world today that God's up in heaven just mad as heck that two men who are in love are having sex with each other? Do you think God cares about something that stupid and trivial? Give me a break. That's beneath God. God only cares about the high-level spiritual stuff. World peace. Are we getting along? Do we love each other? He doesn't care what you do down here with these petty little rules of religion which you people seem to obsess over. That's dualism from the Greeks, wholesale. It's this false idea that God only wants to save our souls and he doesn't care what we do in our bodies. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, what we do in our bodies is a window to what's going on in our souls. What we do with our bodies gives expression and meaning, truth, to what we really believe deep down inside. You cannot do something in the flesh and make a different claim. I can't sleep with another woman but say to my wife, you will always have my heart. Girl, you know I love you. That girl means nothing to me. It's just sex. I love you, but I'm just, you know, with her. (laughs) You can't do that, can you? Well, you can. You just can't be truthful about it. Because what you do with your body reveals what's really happening in your heart. You can't make two disparate claims and expect to be believed, not by God anyway. And so that's what Jezebel did, and that's what so grieved and angered the heart of God. Is she encouraged and seduced people through her teaching to moral compromise that was destroying their faith. Now you might, you might protest, well, what choice do they really have? I mean, let's be realistic after all. This pie-in-the-sky idealism you keep preaching every week, can people really do it in the real world? They didn't have a choice, did they? This is the only system that there was. But I say to you, we as Christians always have a choice. They could have made a choice not to join the guilds and to trust God that they would have food to put on the table every day. They could have put their faith to the test and just said, we won't play the game, but we think God will still give us food to eat. That was a choice they could have made. Or they could have said, we will not play the game, and if poverty is the cost of standing up for what we believe, then we accept poverty as a part of life. That's the part that we're not doing very well in America, is if it's going to cost us anything, then surely God wouldn't want that, would he? Because he wouldn't want us to be uncomfortable. He wouldn't want our kids to go without. He wouldn't want me to, this is the best way, he wouldn't want me to be able to tithe to the church, would he? Not that a lot of us are tithing, like 1% of Americans are tithing, but we say that a lot. Jesus is saying you always have a choice. Even with the prevailing systems that govern the world around you, force you, push you to compromise, you don't have to make that compromise. You can make the courageous stand and trust him. You can have faith. Let me give you one last thing Jesus says to this church in Thyatira. Expect consequence for sin. As he introduces himself, remember in the start of the series I said that Jesus gave a vision of himself to John, and in, John, in Revelation chapter 1, John, in great detail, outlines the appearance of Jesus, the description he sees of Jesus, and then Jesus picks up elements from that vision in the introduction to each letter. 
and each element that he picks up is relevant to what he's going to say to that church. So when he's introducing this letter to the church in Thyatira, here's how he introduces himself. I am the one whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. That is clearly an allusion to the vision Daniel had of Jesus in in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. And here's what that means. The eyes blazing like fire, long story short, means it is his penetrating vision. Nothing is hidden from him. You can erase your internet browser history, you can shred your documents, but nothing is hidden from God. Jesus sees all. Even what you hide behind your back, he sees. You can hide from everyone, even yourself, but you will not be hidden from his sight. And that's one of the things he's saying. The other thing he's saying is, and the burnished bronze feet represent his authority to judge and to judge decisively. He has authority to call people to answer to him for what they did. This vision that John saw, that Daniel saw, which now we see, is to remind us of two things. Jesus knows, and Jesus has the authority to respond to what he sees. It's important for us to remember that our sin doesn't just disappoint Jesus, It doesn't just hurt his feelings. And I think that's what evangelical Christianity has given us, is this idea that I sinned. Oh, man, sorry, Jesus. I know you're probably up in your room like, why did he do it? It really hurts my feelings. We probably have this picture of Jesus like he's just so, why? I don't think that's the only thing he feels when we sin is, he really hurt my feelings. I think he's pissed. I think he's mad. I think I died so you could be free of that nonsense Why do you keep walking back in? Why do you not avail yourself of the power, the strength and victory I've made available to you? Why are you going in circles when I called you to walk in a straight line? I don't think he's neutral or abstract or distant about sin. I think it makes him hopping mad, upset, disappointed to the greatest degree. And the justice of God is no less than the mercy of God. He is merciful but he is just, he is not confused about the difference between right and wrong the way we are. Now, that doesn't mean he's not merciful. Look what he says. Look, even the Jezebel woman in your church, I gave her time to repent. In his own way, he had, he had reached out to her. Listen, Jezebel, you better cut that out or, you know, I'm going to come down there. Don't make me. And she's like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? And she just kept going. He gave her time. She didn't use it. Everybody has a kid like that. They're like, yeah, what you going to do about it? And they just keep going until they got to get smacked. I don't have any kids like that, but you probably do. So he's not ungracious, but don't get the wrong picture of Jesus as a softy just waiting like, um, excuse me, you have my stapler? I believe that's my stapler. I don't think that's Jesus. Like, eh, excuse me. I think he's going to wait, and then he's going to wait, and he's like, oh, that's it. <laughs> You, you, he's a dad who pulls over the car. You made me come back there. This is on you. He's saying he's not impatient, but don't abuse his patience. He doesn't sit around forever while we run amok because that would be unloving to us. God would be a terrible father if there was never a consequence for sin because what does anybody do when they're self-destructive and no harm comes? You know, we think we're disturbed by the fact that bad things happen to good people. I think it's more destructive that good things happen to bad people. We see all these bad people getting away with murder, and we're like, I'm going to kill somebody too. 
There's no consequence in this world for being bad, and there's no reward for being good, so let's just be bad. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. You keep going. If you're one of mine and you keep going, I will come down and lay the smack down on you because that's the only way you're going to realize that you're on the wrong road. And so he promises tremendous suffering will come as a consequence for what she did and what her followers did. But even in that promise of doom, you see it at the very end. His heart is that through the correction, nonetheless, they would eventually repent. He doesn't want to just punish people. He wants them to come home. He wants to rouse them out of their stupor. It says in Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12, that God only disciplines those he loves. Look at this. I think when Jezebel got hers, it wasn't done in a behind the, the, the in a back door, closed door, you know, under the table, little sweetheart deal. I think it was a spectacular and public fall from grace. And I say public because he says, then all the churches, how are they going to know if it's a big secret? You know what makes me so upset is that in churches, whenever something goes down, something bad, everybody goes, oh, let's, let's be in damage control mode. Shh, we don't talk about that. Don't ask. We're just, we're, this is the official version we're going to give to the press. Why not just tell the truth? We don't screw it up. Our leader, you know, that guy who is always doing it, he fell. It happens. We're not going to hide it. This is the reality of the world we live in. But instead, what I see over my 20 years of church leadership, again and again and again, churches cover, they hide, they spin. Why? When we're caught and that public disgrace comes down, our public disgrace is a form of God's grace. Through our spectacular collapse, the rest of Christendom learns that God does not treat sin trivially. The sin is a big problem. It has dire consequences. It is not a joke to God. And when we see the high cost of falling, especially among the leaders, we're meant to be chastened and rebuked and reminded by it. And that is why it's incumbent on us not to hide the truth, not to cover it up. If I fall, let it be a spectacularly public confession so that the rest of Christians can see the truth and learn. This Jezebel was not appointed by the church, but she was a so-called prophetess. In other words, she decided she would carve out a leadership role for herself because no one was giving her any right to lead. And so she decided, these are my people, this is my group, and she ran with it. And because she was a self-styled leader, when she fell, she fell publicly like any leader should. And all the churches would see and learn. In our own history as an evangelical church in America, we have stories like that. Back in 2006, when Ted Haggard, pastor of the 14,000-member New Life Church in Colorado Springs, was, he was one of the most influential and respected evangelical Christians in this country. And it was exposed that he was having drug use and sexual relations with a male prostitute. And he was removed from his leadership role and entered one of the healthiest reconciliation and restoration processes I think the church has seen in a while. More recently, in 2012, Pastor Isaac Hunter, pastor of the 4,000-member Summit Church in Orlando, admitted to having a long-standing affair with one of his former staff members. This, you may not know him, but he's the pastor who um, baptized Dwight Howard. 
and he was enjoying astronomical growth. God was giving favor to his ministry. Young people in their 20s and 30s were flocking in the thousands and genuinely growing and meeting Jesus. And when we see spectacular stories like this, you know, look, haters are going to hate, right? It's easy to go, whatever. They thought they were the stuff until they fell. Especially guys in small churches, looking at guys in big churches and going, see, I knew that was going to happen eventually because you guys are, that's the wrong attitude. These men were helping a lot of people. You read the testimonies of people who got saved and grew in those churches. God was doing amazing things in those churches. They weren't perfect, but God was working. And when they fell so spectacularly, so publicly, what is our response supposed to be? What does Jesus want when we see that? Well, he certainly doesn't want us to join the chorus of haters in self-righteous judgment, heaping abuse, and I told you so's. That's not what he wants. He doesn't want us puffed up with self-righteous pride. What he wants is for us to realize the inherent fragility and the vulnerability of each of our souls. That no matter how much you accomplish for the Lord, you are never immune to the seductive power of sin. That is why the church that received the highest praise for spiritual growth was also called out because of the great danger of moral compromise. Just because you are the champions of the Christian game doesn't make us immune to the trials and hardships of sin. It can get to any one of us if we stop depending on Christ for our protection. And so that's one of the things he closes with is, look, you're going to see Jezebel get justice, and it's going to be spectacular and public, but don't hate on her. Be humble. Realize that but for my grace, that would be you. So guard your hearts. Pursue spiritual growth. Don't sit there and go, well, you know, what can I say? I just, I'm lazy, I'm whatever. Pursue it. If you have to, go back to the things you did at first. They helped you once. They will probably help you again. But don't sit there and languish and find a new way to feel okay with that. Growth matters. And the costs of not growing are tremendous. You have no idea what it will cost you just yet until it's too late. And even if the world tells you there's only one way to get ahead, don't listen. We always have a choice. Don't be the Christian who says, I had no choice. We have a choice. Many Christians have made the ultimate choice. If it's either death or standing up for God, I choose death. I'm not going to compromise. If that's the way the world wants it, that's the way it's going to have to be because I will not make a different choice and justify it before a God who sees all things. He will not be fooled. And I'd rather cut my life short on earth and answer with a clean conscience to God than dwell long here and have a lot of explaining to do one day. It's important that we not get backed against the wall and learn to say helplessly as Christians, what do you want from me? I had no choice. We always, always have a choice. So in the authority of God, I charge our church, avoid moral compromise. Don't listen to the world who says, what's the big deal? Could God possibly care about something that petty? Yes, he could, because God cares about everything. Don't listen to what the world says. 
And understand this, if you've been getting away with offending the heart of God for a long time, don't expect that the long arm of God will never reach you. Because he loves you, he will reach you. He disciplines the ones he loves. It is not good for your soul to get away with murder all the time. The only consequence of that is you will become a murderer. God won't let you fall into that. And if you've dodged the consequences thus far, don't expect to dodge them forever. Calamity, sickness, loss, pain. God uses all those things to chasten and awaken his servants so that their souls will come alive even as their bodies are dying. Don't wait till it has to get to that point because our God is not idle when it comes to our sin. It grieves his heart. He will come and address it in your life because he loves you. You know, as we close, I'll just say it like this. It's not that easy to keep growing as a Christian. And I can promise you nothing outside of the church is going to help you do it. The world's not cheering you on going like at the end of a 5K, come on, you can do it. They're like, yeah, whatever. You guys are so stupid. Do you really think that's true, that works? No one outside of God's people is going to help you grow in Christ. This world does not support the kingdom of God. It's in here we've got to strengthen each other. Call each other out to the greatest standards for the sake of Christ. Encourage one another. Remind one another. Don't let another person in this church slide into spiritual death while we all just stand by. You heard the story recently in England of the two radicalized Muslim men who hacked a British soldier to death, Lee Rigby. 2 p.m. in the afternoon in a wide open public street and it just infuriates me that people took out their cell phones and shot footage and did nothing. Now, it infuriates me because I might have also done nothing, but it makes me so mad that it's possible for us to just watch another human being slip away. And we just record it. We just tell the tale. We need to learn to fight and contend for the truth in each other's lives because we're family. When we take the trouble to say something to you, it's not because we're judging you. It's not because we're hating on you. It's precisely because we love you that we wouldn't be family if we just watched you destroy yourself and never said a word. So when someone loves you enough, and maybe they'll do it clumsily, maybe sometimes they'll actually be wrong. But whenever someone has the courage to try, don't punish them for it. Receive it as the most loving act we can do for each other. Don't slip away. Don't fall. Come back home to Jesus. That's what we're doing for each other. And I hope that if that's where you are right now and someone responds to this message by talking to you lovingly, that maybe God will use that person in your life to do something amazing. Why don't we bow just for a time of response? And I'm going to invite you to respond to the point from this message that most is relevant to where your heart is right now. Maybe where you are is you're stuck. You look back at the, the story, the graph of your Christian life, and you were on fire at first, but today you flatlined. There's just nothing happening. Maybe where you need to respond to God is say, I think I need to start growing again. I need to be intentional about that. 
Maybe you're in a situation where the world and its system and rules has your back against the wall. If you're going to get through this thing, if you're going to move forward, you're going to have to break some rules and cut some corners. And in your heart, there's a struggle because really, what choice do I have? If you've heard yourself ask that question again and again, then that's where you've got to respond because God has always given us a choice. It may be a hard choice, a non-acceptable choice, but it is a choice we can make. Pray for the courage to make that choice. Maybe you're one who has flown in the face of God in open rebellion and you're starting to become bold. You're thinking, God doesn't even pay attention. Look at me. I'm living so far from him and nothing ever goes wrong in my life. What's the difference between when I walk with him and when I don't? I pray for you that you won't have to find out. Because he loves you, he will fight for you. When he fights for you, you may end up bruised a little. I hope that you can come home before the chastening of the Lord has to catch up with you. He isn't ignoring you. He isn't okay with what you're doing. He sees you and knows your name and wants you home. Can you hear him? So wherever you are, just take a minute now and bow. Just respond to God. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.